everybody. Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 23rd of May, 2013, and I'm very pleased to be speaking to Dr. Niels Axel Möhner, who is Emeritus Professor of Paleogeophysics and Geodynamics at the University of Stockholm in Sweden. Dr. Mona has served as head of two commissions for the International Union for Quaternary Research, or INQUA, the Commission on Neotectonics, and the Commission on Sea Level Changes and Coastal Evolution, for which he has led the Maldives Sea Level Project. He was at one time the head of the INTAS Project on Geomagnetism and Climate, and he remains a severe critic of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC. Dr. Myrna, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Thank you. Now, I'm very, very pleased that you've been able to come onto the podcast because in recent weeks we've been looking into this subject of climate change, um, so far with Dr. Eric Karlstrom and Mark Morano of Climate Depot, and both of these people reject the idea that human-produced CO2 is leading to dangerous changes in the Earth's climate. And, of course, one of the claims of the IPCC is that sea levels are rising as a knock-on effect of global warming and that these are predicted to have really disastrous consequences for millions of people around the globe. So I thought that it would be very interesting to see what you, as a sea level expert, would have to say about those kinds of claims. So we'll get on to that in a moment. But first, I'd really like to ask, could you, just in order to give us some background as as to where you're coming from on all this, could you give us a brief overview of your work as a scientist? My work as a scientist is in many different fields. Uh, I have both the time and the courage, and hopefully also the knowledge, to cover a broad range of different disciplines, personally and together with my students. I think that's quite necessary today. To become a super specialist on one thing, you tend not to understand the other things. There's so many things which goes together, which are linked without really being obvious. You have to decode the messages which nature itself gives to you. So I am very much devoted to observational facts. I mean, I love nature, I love observations, and it's very hard for me to um, accept that computer modeling at places far remote from the area which they are discussing should be taken seriously about certain problems. And that goes for sure for sea level changes. Eric Karlstrom, in fact, was criticizing the same thing and saying that he is very much a hands-on kind of scientist. So your research is very much like that as well, isn't it? Because you do a, a great deal of field research out there in the real world. Yes, I'm living living very much in the field. And I have been nearly all over the globe, from uh, northernmost Greenland to Antarctica and all around the globe at coast and also inland, because I'm working with inland problems too. But coast is what I really love. Sweden, of course, I began here doing a very, very detailed study of sea level changes. And in recent years, I have worked very much in the Indian Ocean, the place where so much has been said sinking islands, they call it sinking islands, but they really mean that flooding islands becomes flooded or lowlands. We have Bangladesh, we have the Maldives, we have many such places. And when you look at the real facts in the real world, it is not exactly as being claimed. Yes. 
Mm -hmm. Now, I think it would be very helpful before we get into any detail about this, if you could give us some clarification on technical matters. So what are the major factors that contribute to sea level change? A variety of parameters, very, very many different. And that's why as a geologist and a field person, you have to go out to the coast and evaluate not one, but all of them, the different factors which we are facing right now at this very spot. And then when you have done that, you attack the problem by not just in being in the spot that you are standing. You should have it in the exposed coast. You should see it in the sheltered coast. You should see it in the lagoons, maybe in inland lakes, offshore by diving and so on. So all this is a family of environments, all of which you may cover, must cover. And very few people are doing this. Then um, there's also very many different methods to pinpoint the actual sea level. Coasts like my own here in Sweden, where it's very limited tidal range. It's simple to see it. It's simple to record it. In other areas where you have a high tidal range, I mean, the highest tidal range is 18 meters in eastern Canada. So there is an enormous difference. So you, then you have to hit mean sea level. And mean sea level you can record by tide gauges. Tide gauges began to be installed in 1682, first one in Amsterdam, the second was uh, 1724 in Sweden, and then one in Liverpool and one in Brest. These are the four earliest. So they have a record, but of course those gauges they are not by themselves stable unless they are founded on a very stable rock. Most of those tide gauges were, at least in previous time, installed on harbor constructions. And those heavy harbor constructions were often resting on clay or peat or whatever sediments. So they also included quite a substantial part of local subsidence, compaction beneath the harbor constructions. That has to be taken into account. Then you can go in recent years with something remarkable, with satellite altimetry. From the satellite, you can measure the ocean level, not only at the coast, but also in the middle of the sea. That's a remarkable tool, and you can see the variability over the globe. However, however, it's important to stress that one thing is what they measure, but then when they have measured something, they make calibrations without telling that they have done calibration, then they come up at records, which are not measured in fact, but they are products after calibration. And this is the case with the satellite altimetry record, which you can download on the web. It is calibrated, terribly much calibrated. The first eight years, it was a straight line. Then suddenly the whole record after three years jumped by 2.3 millimeter per year trend rise. And when I accused the people, why did you have not measured it? It's something you have calibrated. Then a man at, when we had a discussion in the Royal Academy of Science in Moscow, he was representative of the, of the British delegation for IPCC. He rose his hand and said, yeah, but we had to do that, otherwise it wouldn't have been a trend. And I stopped it and said, did you hear what you said yourself? Because this is exactly what I'm accusing you for. You have changed it 
not because of physical means, but because you need a trend. And then it was a third jump. Now it is 3.1 millimeter per year rise according to that curve. But that is not a measured curve, which very few people know. And how far back do these records for satellite altimetry go? 1992. So it's a very short record. Yes. So we have to have a longer record. And if you go through the last 300 years and see ups and downs, the ups and downs are always in the order of one millimeter per year. It's a small thing. Very, very small. 10 centimeter in 100 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, the last big jump, it was 11 centimeter from 1850 to 1940, 11 centimeter. Then it's very, very interesting. If you look at the Earth rate of rotation, how fast the Earth rotates, because if the radius increases, even with 11 centimeter, Earth rate of rotation should decelerate because of the physical law. And it did. So there it fits perfectly. But if we go to today's record, the Earth rate of rotation is not decelerating, uh, but it's increasing. So it's completely against the idea of IPCC that C is rising. So C is, for me, it's, it's reasonably stable, maybe rising a little, but it's no danger. Mm -hmm. There are many things with IPCC scenario, getting warmer and colder. Here in northern Sweden, for example, I'm not sure that everybody would be sad if it gets warmer. <laughs> <laughs> but if sea rises, there is nothing good which can come from it. Only problems. And when you record it, it's not at all as they claim. Well, and their claims are, I mean, I have here a quote uh, from the U.S. National Research Council from 2010, and they are here suggesting an advance on what the IPCC said. I mean, the IPCC said in 2007 that a global sea level rise in the 21st century is likely to be 18 to 59 centimetres. But then the U.S. National Research Council here in this quote is saying that uh, it could possibly be between 56 and 200 centimetres in rise. And then the consequences they spell out. Out. They say even if sea level rise were to remain in the conservative range projected by the IPCC, 18 to 59 centimetres that is, tens of millions of people worldwide would still become vulnerable to flooding due to sea level rise over the next 50 years. So they, they are certainly painting this picture that it's going to affect millions worldwide in these low-lying coastal areas and these islands and people are going to suffer. But you disagree with this fundamentally, don't you? And this is based upon your research. Yeah. First of all, this about refugees, it's interesting because the United Nations said that they said 2005, that in 2010, it would be more than 10 million people refugees, or 50 million, maybe. It was an enormous, and we have passed that for three years ago, and there are no refugees at all. Then we come to this figure, which is 50 to 200, two meters, up to two meters of sea level. That's very, very simple to show how wrong it is. I used to talk about frames, like a picture. A picture is framed. Many things which we are talking about are framed by physical laws or knowledge which we have obtained through history. When ice receded after the last ice age, we had enormous amounts of ice at mid-latitudes in Europe, in North America. So there were endless amount of ice to melt. And they could melt both from geothermal heating beneath, from 
heating from the water and heating from the air. So there were all possibilities of rapid melting. And when it passed, for example, Stockholm area 10,000 years ago, it was the most rapid melting rate. Ice margin passed north by 300 meters per year. At the same time, ice flow forward by 500 meters. So really the ice margin was melted by 800 meters, which is an enormous rate. Still, still sea level didn't rise more than 10 millimeter per year. That is one meter per century. So then I say, look here, here we have a frame. We have a frame because nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing today can beat that melting rate of the last ice age, 10 millimeter per year, one meter per year. So everything which is more than one meter, people are just speaking nonsense. To two meter, we just cross over two meter. It is impossible. It has to be below one meter and probably significantly below one meter. The records which you have in nature is about 10 centimeters in a century. The X factor in this was, of course, Greenland, because Greenland is not as far north as Antarctica. Antarctica is not melting, but Greenland could melt. And some people have said that it's melting very rapidly. But those things were primarily modeling, but they have improved it and um, done a recent analysis published a month ago or so. And all the best estimate, new, revolutionary new estimates based on much better facts than before, says that maybe in 100 years, it's one to six millimeters, millimeters. So that's nothing. All these things have to be clarified because there's so many things which are not what people say and claim. Mm -hmm. So these claims that are made then, uh, from from what you're saying, it seems to be that they're not really based upon the data. It must be the way that the data is being manipulated in order to tell a narrative which the data itself does not really justify. Is that what's going on? Is that what is going on? Those who tell disastrous things about sea level rising, they get money. Those who say that sea level is not rising, they don't get money. And it's very hard to get paper published. Nature hardly takes in anything which is not uh, applauding IAPCC. So therefore, it's very interesting that they just now have published, Nature itself published a paper saying, no, no, it will not be three or four degrees in in a century. The maximum it can be is 1.3 degrees, well below the two degrees level, which all people are talking about. And all the nation have signed that we have to keep it. And other people say we can't keep it. But now the best new revision is 1.3. I think even that is an exaggeration, but it doesn't matter. It's a revision of previous exaggeration into something which is more realistic, but also consider the long term, because we are babies of the sun. It controls our climate in most part. In 600 years, we have gone through several so-called little ice ages. It means periods, a couple of decades where the solar cycle was very low. In 1687 to 1703, it was even nearly the sunspot were gone. So it was a little ice age. We had a cooling now in 1940 to 1965. And in 2030-40, around that period, we will be in another solar minimum. 
which in previous periods generated little ice age. So the man-made part, which have been analyzed by people in the statistics, may be at the most is 40%. And 40% of 0.8 degrees, that is about uh, 0.3 degrees per rise in the last rise of 100 ppm uh, CO2. The next rise of 100% can only, physical law, be half of that. So that is 0.15. And the second one after that will 0.07 and so on. So you can see if you add these up even to 800 ppm, it's hard to get very much more than half a degree or so. So you do agree that uh, human produced CO2 then is having at least some effect? Minute effect. Well, I shouldn't say no. Mm-hmm. So it is it is negligible, really. As far as sea level rises are concerned, you would say that it's it, it is negligible. Sea level, yes, negligible. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that when I was speaking to Mark Morano, I said that Kevin Trenberth, who is the head of the climate analysis section at the USA National Center for Atmospheric Research, said that a lot of the energy that was predicted to give rise to global warming, because we don't see global warming apparently at the moment, that that energy is being trapped in the oceans and that it's going to be released later on. We will see the effects of global warming at a later date. Now, what you're saying seems very much to go completely against this, because we would see, I would have thought, dramatic thermal expansion if all this energy was being trapped in the oceans. Yeah, it's very simple. So because we have measurements over the globe on the ocean temperature back to the early 60s, and the rise in temperature for the whole column from the sea surface down to 700 meters depth is in the order of 0.3 degrees. And that effect is very, very small for the thermal expansion. Thermal expansion is another interesting thing which people have been talking and talking about. But what is it? First of all, it's the upper surface of the oceans which can be heated. Maybe 300 meters substantial heating may go down even to 700. But even these things are so that we are talking about 10 centimeters in a century. Mm-hmm. The thicker the water column is, which is being thermally expanded, the larger are the effects. In the open ocean, maybe 300 to 700 being expanded. If you go to the coast, the water depth becomes more and more shallow. So if you go to about 100 meters depth, it's three and a half centimeters effect. You go to 10 meters, it's three and a half millimeter. And at the very coast, and that's where we are sitting, the effect is, of course, zero because there's no water to expand. And then people think, ah, but why is not flushing in? But it's not doing that because it's a dynamic sea surface, not a straight line it's a, and a smooth line. It's very irregular and wrinkled and so on. Most people don't understand that. So even if it were the case then that the oceans were thermally expanding dramatically, this wouldn't necessarily translate into problems at the coastline. No. Mm-hmm. No, no. And it is measured. It's measured. So it's not a dramatic thing. And it has been more or less going up and down in a straight line about 0.3 degrees, 0.3 or 0.4, but not absolutely not more. 
it's now 50 years documentation. And is it right that, in fact, the melting of glaciers and ice sheets is the biggest factor, really, that really the, uh, the expansion of the oceans is a is much a smaller phenomenon in the sea level rise? No, these are those people who want to, want, badly want sea level to flood the coasts. But I'm not uh, like to flood the coast. I like to have the people living there. <laughs> the glacier takes a lot of time. Most people at the school time in physics, they had an experiment, they had a piece of ice and they measured the calories and the time it took to melt it. This is a physical law and we cannot overcome and change the laws. And those people are talking about very, very rapid ice melting. It violates the laws because they don't care about the laws, because they don't know the laws. And yet they seem to present evidence that this melting is going on. How are they generating this evidence? Yeah, the melting globe is always melting and not melting. Glaciers are expanding and they are contracting. And glaciers are affected both by the precipitation and by the temperature. A good example, which is just nonsense, is Kilimanjaro ice cap. Kilimanjaro is a very high mountain right at the equator, it was said that it dis- disappeared because of temperature. And certainly not. It has not a single factor of temperature because it was surrounded by a rainforest. Mm. The rainforest generated steam and vapor, and that fell as snow. Then they cut down much of the forest. And instead of coming vapor, it came heat. There was no more water feeding that, so it collapsed. But that has nothing to do with temperature. It's a local phenomenon done by the people around. Then we have the Greenland, because Greenland is a huge ice cap with a lot of water. Would it melt totally? It would be rise sea level by seven meters. But in order to melt a body like that, it would take tens of thousands of years. And when we look at it, what is going on with it, like a doctor is... Listen at your heart. You listen, you really listen to Greenland. What is going on? So in some places expanding, other places contracting. And the best estimate done just two months ago was that it's not at all at melting at the rates which have been proposed. It is melting in a rate which gives sea level rise of one to six millimeter in hundred years. Now, you have touched on this at the beginning of the interview, but I just wanted to be a little bit clearer about it. Your research has taken you to all sorts of different places around the globe. Is that right? You have, yes. You're not just looking at particular areas. You have yeah. data that uh, extends widely geographically, and the data also has records, which goes back. So you have a very good view of the global range on this matter. I hope so. I hope so. Also, in the methodology, I apply very many different criteria. I use different methodologies, always, always expanding, always, always checking, always, always dating and so on. So I came to the Maldives because the Maldives is such an interesting place for pure sea level research. And when I started the studies there, also, I should say, that was more or less a white spot on Earth with respect to sea level research. So what do you mean by a white spot? Very few investigations had been undertaken there. Uh-huh. And it was a place where the gravity was, so to say, a hole. The sea level was lying lower with respect to the Earth's center than any other place on Earth. 
So it was interesting to see if that was a stable thing or not. We had the currents which could brought more or less water. We have the air pressure from the monsoon which changed yearly and so on. So we came to Maldives. I had friends, group of absolutely the best sea levels people we have. And we made studies, expeditions for a month. And very soon I saw, wow, something wrong is here. Sea level is not rising, as they have said. You can see it from the morphology of the shores. You can see it from the uh, where it's erosion, because erosion and deposition always take space. Erosion is not an uh, indication of sea level rise. So here sand was taken at one spot. But that sand, if sea would be rising, it would have been transformed and redeposited at a higher position than before in overland. But instead, it was transported laterally out from the sea to a lower level. And the old place was left as a fossil shore. And you could see that from island to island to island. And from talking with the fishermen, we could see that everything changed in the 1970s. So sea didn't rise there, it fell a little. That was quite remarkable. And since that time, it has been completely stable. I mean, you cannot measure it, so little. And the criteria we use are quite sharp. I had a best coral reef specialist, French colleague, Jacques Laborel. As a test, I said, you go in from your biological criteria, please mark the best estimate of mean sea level you can have. And I will mark on the other side for morphology. And then we will level it by leveling instrument. And so we did. Our difference was less than one centimeter, which tells you that, yes, if you have good eyes, you can tie it in very, very well. So in a long period of time, it hasn't been rising at all. That was the message from the Maldives. Mm -hmm. Then I went to Bangladesh, which was... Could I just, before you go on to Bangladesh, it was in the Maldives where the government actually had (laughs) this uh, underwater cabinet meeting where they had all that diving equipment. And so they would, the attention was to draw... attention to their impending plight they were going to be submerged so you are saying from your research that there's just nothing to that at all it's completely completely wrong even completely nonsense so when i understood this the first time i thought i cannot go home to sweden and publish these things there it's not respectful for the people there i have to tell them first so i uh, went to the local tv Mala tv and they were very interested and they shot a video with me and we discussed it and it was quite nice. We were sitting on the, on the beach and children were jumping in the trees. But that was censored. It was not allowed to be shown in the local from the government. Then we had from our scientific colleagues. I came there to shoot a movie with a Danish TV, TV man in 2003. I have to go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had found a tree which was uh, standing at a very, very delicate position with the feet in the water. I mean, the slightest little rise of sea level and that tree would have been gone. That tree had been observed because it was on an island which was the prison island. People were impressionated and when they were released, the first thing they saw was this tree. So there was some sort of tree of freedom. Therefore, it was a lot of records. 50, 60 years, that tree had been standing in that strange position. So I said, look here, that tree tells you 
so well that sea level is not rising and has not been rising. And there is something wonderful with a tree because a tree doesn't lie. Yes. Then I came there in 2003, went to the spot, but the tree was not there. It was lying down. So, of course, as an honest scientist, I thought, wow, I was wrong. But then there was a little coffee shop which we used to sit on and look at the tree because we liked the tree. And I went there and I said, ask the people there, when did the, the sea take the tree? And they said, no, no, no. It was the, the sea never took it. It was a group of Australian scientists which pulled it down by hand. Amazing. And then, you know, you got a feeling in the backbone. I mean, to destroy evidence, you don't. And I, uh, I know 2003, the same year, it was a group from Australia, some people from New Zealand, we'd have been there. They had been in our footsteps because they published something. It was right. It's very strange. It was the same islands that we have been. And they wanted to disprove what we had found, but they couldn't do it. You have, though, presumably photographs of this tree. Yes. 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 I have. Mm-hmm. So you do have that record. Yeah, I have it also record in my computer, but also in two publications. Mm-hmm. Now, you also said that uh, you did some research in Bangladesh. So what did you find there? Yeah, that was very, very interesting because that is a place which have been said that its sea is very rapidly rising and millions of people have to move because of this. So first of all, Dhaka is, of course, a very badly located city. It's not a city, it's a mega city, about 40 million million people. You know, it's terrible that they put people there. That is threatened because of many things, two rivers and one on each side. The water from the Himalayas comes there. So each time it's raining there, Dhaka becomes flooded. Each time it's a cyclone, wind and water is being pressed in the rivers and you get flooded. But it has nothing to do with the sea level rise. So I began to study it. But because so many people had written that sea is rising, I said, yes, I began with that as a working hypothesis. But the first thing, they had an old concrete uh, dewatering system which went down to mean sea level. I asked, how old is that? And I got the figure and I said, wow, if sea level would have been rising, this should have been sand accumulation at the outer part. And it wasn't. It seemed that sea had been stable. And after a while, then I made a thorough investigation and you could show by stratigraphy and field evidence that no sea had not risen at all. The delta surface and the stability of the delta surface, the older mean high tide levels, which was marked and it was strong erosion by the 2007 cyclone. That had had a terrible effect. And on the beach, it was standing a lot of trees. So people said, ah, trees on land. It means that sea had been rising. But then I went out to the trees and looked at the trees. And the trees had horizontal roots. It was mangrove trees. And the mangrove trees, you can say, aha, then you know for sure that the sediment surface at the time before the um, erosion, that um, mean sea level would have been above these horizontal roots and saw the sediment surface. So it was not at all any rise in sea level. It was a stability, the same thing. Then I've been in Goa in India, where I was chairman of a, of a scientific session. And during days, of course, I went out and looked at the field evidence 
there we could trace the same thing. And there we had a long tide gauge record, which was nice. One in Goa and Mumbai and also on the other side, telling the same story. And in this morphology and stratigraphy and um, where sea biota was living, you could see precisely that the sea few decades ago was a little higher and now it was a little lower. And there it has been stable precisely as in uh, the Maldives, precisely as in Bangladesh for 50 years or so, 40, 50 years. Then there were some old buildings. So you can go into archaeology from uh, 1500 to 1600 uh, AD. There was a higher sea level, precisely as I had found and also dated by C14 later uh, uh, on the coast. And after that, sea was lower. And in the museum, there was a painting done about 1600 or 700. And it depicted abundant harbor where breaks were lying. It was not low tide. And a new harbor built outside, which was the sea level of today. That's quite nice. So we have picture, we have archaeology, we had geology and morphology and all these things. And we have tide gauges. So I think that's how you should work. And so is it painting the picture then that sea level rise has really not been taking place very much at all for hundreds of years? Yes. Yes. You have in the database of NOAA, they have 204 tide gauges now, which have selected all over the world and say, ah, those are the best. And if you take the mean of that, sea would rise 0.75 meter today. And then you can take a little outliers and make it a little better. And it may be one millimeter per year rise. That's not very much. 10 centimeters in 100 years. That doesn't make any harm. But even those data we know because of so many subsidence factors that it's, uh, it's too much. But we are there somewhere between no rise at all and a millimeter of you. And that's the same figure which we have got during the last 300 years. So that's the message. All things are very points to the same direction. And there's nothing very special about the last 50 years or so then? No, not from my, not from my point of view. Mm-hmm. And some people point to Venice and say that, well, there's, ah, ev- there's uh, evidence, there's evidence yes. there. That, uh... Okay. Venice I used as a test area because we have a tide gauge record from uh, the late 19th century very carefully done because of the threat to Venice itself. But we have also paintings from 1730, which was done so well. It was the first time Camera Obscura was uh, was invented. Mm-hmm. And there the algae rim is also on the pictures because it duplicated so many pictures with this Camera Obscura way. We have the lots of lots of pictures, and the and the, the algae rim can be traced to today's situations. You can see that the subsidence because of the delta loading in the area has been consistent over 300 years. And then you can subtract the tide gauges, and there is no special rise there going on. But what is it? In 1970, sea doesn't start to rise. The tide gauge shows a substantial subsidence. So it's going in the completely wrong direction. But one thing is for sure, it gives solid information that sea 
not rising dramatically in Venice and certainly not accelerating that people often claim. You have another thing, for example, in the Dutch coast, Amsterdam is subsiding. Coxhaven is subsiding. That is not the rise. It's stable or going even down a little recent time. And that fits very, very well with the earth rate of rotation, which is not decelerating, going slower as it should if sea level would be rising. But instead, it's accelerating like sea is stable or falling. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Now, your your position is obviously very, very clear on this. But one thing that uh, I think to myself is, well, what about your professional organization that you've uh, done a lot of work for over the years, the INQUA? Um, is it right? That, I mean, as, as far as I understand, their official position is that they agree with the IPCC. But in your experience, is it right that most of the people who are members of that organization actually agree with that position? No, no, certainly not. When I was the was chairman of the of the session, we had about three four hundred members. We had this question up at five different meetings, international meetings. We discussed it vigorously because when I was expert reviewer of the IPCC two thousand, I saw this is not a nice and sound evaluation. It's far too rapid rise suggested. So we took it out and. We, by a lot of work, came to the conclusion, and there was the best sea levels people at that time, that it must be in the range of 10 centimeters, plus and minus 10 centimeters in 100 years. And that was our position, and we published it. Later, uh, the whole the environment of the commission changed, and the president was a man which was very much pro-IPCC. So it's really that person's interference with science which marked the change in position mm-hmm. well, it's very often said in the mainstream media that there is this scientific consensus on all matters to do with climate change now to my mind the very fact that they feel it's necessary to use that term scientific consensus ah. so it suggests to me that there isn't a consensus otherwise exactly. I mean, why, why yes. use it otherwise it seems to me a propaganda term yes. what's your view you, you agree that it is essentially propaganda do you First of all, it's a propaganda view. Certainly the same that 97% of the scientists are for IPC. I mean, I hardly knew a scientist which is not critical to IPCC, and especially geologists. There was a meeting in, in Oslo, and every fourth year we have a big meeting in geology, and it was in Oslo. And um, Hildegard, the minister from Denmark, was there, and it was very much discussed climate. And she said, it must be something wrong with your geologist because you don't subscribe to IPCC. And there must be that you are working with millions of years and don't see the fine structure. And of course, what is wrong with us is that we are faced with observations. We like observations. All geologists are uh, obsessed by observations. They take computer modeling as assistance in their work, but not the main part. And those who are standing behind the IPCC, they do all this modeling and fiddling, whatever you call it. And Eric Harstrom was saying that he thinks the IPCC is essentially a political body. It masquerades as scientific, but it's essentially got this political agenda. Does that characterize that organization, do you think? Yes. Yes. First of all, it began like political and it turned over because it's, it was uh, it was like a religion. It seduced the people. But their own measurements 
will sooner or later catch up with them. And then they are beginning to change. We have to change. And all the rats will be leaving the sinking ships. I'm sure that the whole elephantiasis on global warming will be out before year 2020. Can I ask you what, in your view, you think is actually driving this political agenda of the IPCC? If it's not science, that it is politics, what do you think is really behind it? Now I switch from science, which I know. I'm a documentary scientist, but I can also hypothesize and have views, which is important to stress the difference. Absolutely, yeah. So, of course, it began politically. Our prime minister... Olof Palme was certainly not innocent in the case. That then they wanted to go out of the dependence of oil industry and imported oil. And of course, Bert Bolin was the leading scientist, the idea of a connection between CO2, temperature and sea level. Okay? He presented it in 1971 and 73 was the oil crisis. And Palme wanted badly into the nuclear power industry. He said that if Sweden will not have at least 24 a nuclear power station by 1990, we will not survive as an industrial country. This is a quotation. And he was school friend with Bolin. He played tennis with Bolin twice a week. Together, they launched this. And Palmer said, we must not let it be a scientific question, because then it takes so much time. He had got the idea about the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change which he put in the mouth of Brundtland, and Brundtland had it in the Brundtland Report, 1988. But during the period when Brundtland was working on it, Bolin had already set up the whole commission, so he became the first chairman of the commission. Then it started, started all in the first time when they said, we must show that it was a terrible influence of humans, uh, anthropogenic effect. All the scientists at the first meeting said, we don't know, maybe, I mean, but certainly we cannot say that it is. So because he had written the resolution before the conference had began. And then there was very much strange writing here, here and back. And finally, people dropped out and said, this was not what we said. And then Bolin changed it by himself and wrote his idea. It is a strong effect from anthropogenic warming. And when people complain, he said, as chairman, I take the liberty of changing the scientific language into an understandable um, popular science vocabulary. But that was making black-white. Thatcher, of course, followed up immediately, maybe also parallel. And it came at a period then that people all over the world subscribed to it because it was a nice idea. One of the greatest problems, my greatest worry with this talk about IPCC, it, it, it steals the limelight from the real problems in the real world. That is so terrible because the world is full of problems and still everything is about carbon dioxide. Not innocent in this discussion is the nuclear industry. The nuclear industries, their best argument is to make the claim, which is not correct, of course, but the claim that nuclear power is carbon dioxide free. But if you include the mining, the process of producing the fuel, all the transport and the electricity involved and all these things, it's certainly, certainly not carbon dioxide free. I think it is just below coal has been one claim. It's interesting, recently a paper at the Academy of Science here in Stockholm 
Philly specialist said, yeah, we was very, we were very enthusiastic for nuclear power in the, in the 60s and early 70s. But in the 80s came Chernobyl and then we got problems and we couldn't argue for a fifth nuclear power plant. But everything became better when the discussion on carbon dioxide began, because then we had a renaissance. The world was renaissance in nuclear power. And there also seem to be many other environmental issues which are getting forgotten. Because every time I see somebody saying something about we need to look after the environment, uh, the next statement will be something on the lines of and reduce our CO2 emissions. And I think, well, there are so many other issues out there. Why are they getting forgotten and hidden behind this single issue which everybody's obsessed with? Thank you. Because this is exactly what has been driving me very strongly in this direction. And it's certainly the case... Bangladesh and so on, they think that they can blame somebody. For example, it was an area in Bangladesh coast where it was 495 hectares of mangrove, and today it is 50 left. So that opened the coast, exposed it for danger when the cyclones comes. And they have they deforest the coast to have a shrimp ponds. This is not good either, because the mangrove is a wonderful protection. And so when there's a problem, they can then blame global warming for it instead. Precisely. Yes, precisely. This is the case. Yes. And another thing I would like you to comment upon are what all this does for the reputation of science itself. Yes. There you hit a serious, serious question. And uh, for those of us who uh, love it so much and I believe in science and education and understanding. It's remarkable. It's completely remarkable that IPCC have been able to grow this strong. Yes, and it seems to me that many, many people now distrust the IPCC and really don't think that what they have been saying is true in many, many ways. And one of the consequences of this must be that people think, well, because the IPCC is a scientific body, that we we can't really trust science itself. Yes, but the worst thing comes when the IPCC has really collapsed. And I think they will collapse soon. And then will becomes the largest distrust of science. At the moment, there is too much of the IPCC, such a fantastic thing, so we believe in that. Why should we believe in you? We believe in IPCC. It's so many scientists behind it. But is it really so many scientists? No, it is not. Because it looks like that. But when you scratch the surface, it's very few. And uh, you have written a small book about all this, haven't you, which you've given the title, I believe, The Greatest Lie Ever Told. Um, Could you tell people how they can get hold of a copy of that? Uh, It's just to send me an email and then I have an invoice. And even better if they have a payment. (laughs) I have sent out a lot of them, but I have also quite a list of those who don't pay. Yes, so if people email you and ask you for resources, then you can suggest all sorts of things. You can um, give them a copy of your book, as you say, but you can also tell them websites which would be good to research and also links to your own papers that people can read. There's a lot of material which could be one could show the direction to, yes. Mm-hmm. Great. So I shall include your email address then in the show notes for today. Yes. Thank you very much. Well, Dr. Murna, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. It's been very, very interesting. Can I thank you then very much for your time? This is why I have my time, of course. This is exactly what you should use your time to. Before we close, is there anything else that you would like to say to the listeners? 
No, it has been a pleasure for me too. I mean, um, think for yourself, observe for yourself. Don't take everything for granted. These other things, what you read is because it's being published. It's certainly not the criterion that is good and correct. And there's so much today which is going on, which is incorrect. Indeed. Usually, the more you turn the page, you look or turn the boulder over, you see something which is not as being claimed. And that's very, very sad and very unfortunate. And that's why observation must always be in the center. And that's exactly where geologists are. They are around looking, 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 documenting, documenting, and drilling and digging and whatever. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's excellent advice. Thank you very much indeed for coming on, Dr. Murna. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.